Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode number 21 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. If you can, please take a second to tap subscribe. We're available on all sorts of podcast platforms, including the major ones like iTunes and Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, and also on SoundCloud. Just type in Income Investing with Alexis Asadi, and we should pop up or visit alexisasadi.net slash podcast. Now, as you may already know, the listeners of this podcast look to income-producing investments for all sorts of reasons. A, they can pay income, either monthly or quarterly, so you can use that revenue to supplement your employment earnings. Some people eventually get to a point where their investment income actually replaces their expenses, and that's also known as being financially free. B, there are so many types to choose from. There are real estate investment trusts, mortgage funds, peer-to-peer lending, tax lien certificates, bonds, income funds, royalty trusts, rental properties, and endless other options. So that can allow investors to diversify across assets, markets, and industries. C, a lot of these investments not only pay income, but they can also appreciate in value, so you can earn revenue, and realize a capital gain from them. In many ways, it's like getting the best of both worlds. And D, many income investments are quite affordable. There are plenty that trade on the stock market, and they can be purchased for under a few hundred dollars, so you don't necessarily need tens of thousands saved up in order to participate. So we're in the midst of wrapping up our direct mortgage lending segment. We're going to do one more week, and then we'll move on to mortgage investment funds. These are investment funds that either lend money directly or they buy and sell loan contracts, so they're trading them. But now that we're almost at the end, I wanted to do something a little bit different and talk to you on a more personal level. Today I'm going to discuss a company that I started called Pacific Income. I'm going to show you some of what it's like to launch and manage a financing business, and I'll give you some of what goes on behind the scenes. But before we get into all of that, let's take a question from one of our listeners. Remember, if you have something that you'd like me to address, you can always let me know at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. And remember, it doesn't always have to be relevant to our current discussion. If you have something on your mind, just let me know. Today's question is from Lewis, who wanted to know if there are any cryptocurrency income funds out there and whether I've ever invested in one and how it all worked out for me. So, Lewis, I'm interpreting your question as whether there are currently any crypto funds that can be invested in and that pay monthly or quarterly dividends. To my knowledge, nothing like this exists yet, at least not in a legitimate capacity. You hear about all kinds of scams where people supposedly invest in a cryptocurrency offering, which is meant to pay out monthly returns, but I haven't really seen anything that looks real. From what I can tell, crypto deals are basically buy low, sell high plays. You buy into a currency or a derivative and essentially hope that it's going to go up one day. It's all about earning a capital gain. I think it'd be hard to build a reliable income fund out of that because the underlying asset doesn't produce revenue. Income funds usually own assets like real estate or royalties or mortgages or even dividend producing businesses, and these can all pay some sort of cash distribution which is then passed on to the investors in the fund. I'm sure something like it will eventually come out, Lewis, but I'm not aware of anything credible at the moment. 
I do learn something, I'll probably dedicate a good 10 or so episodes to it because there's a ton of material to explore. It's an interesting space anyway because of how it's impacting our financial markets, but right now I just don't see an income component to it. If anyone else knows of something, please do let me know at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. All right, so let's do a quick recap. If you're joining us for the first time, you may want to start all the way back at episode 10. That was the beginning of our mortgage lending segment. In that first show, we established a few ground-level facts about this type of investment. We saw that a loan is typically made after one or both parties sign a contract called a loan agreement or a promissory note. Among other things, it will list the conditions of the loan, including the interest rate and when it must be paid back. That's called the maturity date. Loans can be secured against real estate. The way to do that is by using a legal instrument called a mortgage, and a mortgage does two things. First, it does not allow the borrower to sell the property without paying the lender from the proceeds of the sale. Second, if the terms of the promissory note or loan agreement are broken, then the lender can foreclose on the property. That means to seize it and sell it in order to recoup the lender's funds. So one of the keys to remember is that mortgages and loans are two separate items. A mortgage is a security instrument that's used to tie a debt into real estate. We also saw that mortgage loans must be paid back in chronological order once the property is sold. So if there are three mortgages registered on a house, then the one that was registered first gets paid back first. However, the government may be able to register a lien that supersedes all other mortgages if the borrower has defaulted on her taxes, and that's why it's really important to ensure that the borrower is current on her tax obligations. Another crucial concept to understand is the loan-to-value ratio, or LTV. This expresses the value of a property when compared to the mortgages on it. For instance, if there's a house worth $300,000 that has two mortgages on it, say one for $100,000 and another for $150,000, then its LTV would be 83%. Lenders will want to make sure that there's enough equity in the real estate so that they can recover their capital in the event of a default. Episode number 11 explained how mortgages are investments. We saw that they are popular assets for investors because they can generate income through a combination of interest payments and fees. As well, the borrower will usually have to repay the lender for all of its legal expenses, so you can make a loan that's backed by real estate and have your costs covered by the borrower. Episodes 12 through 14 covered the risks of mortgage lending and how they can be managed, and that led us to episode 15, which talked about the debt market. We saw that loans of all sorts, whether they're mortgages or auto loans or consumer financing agreements, can be bought and sold by investors. In fact, the other day, I got a letter from TD Bank saying that it sold a bundle of its credit cards to a company called Flex City Financial and that one of my cards was included in it. So the ability to trade loans means that not only can investors earn income from them, but they can also provide for a capital appreciation. That took us briefly into bonds, and we talked about terms like yield and face value and the coupon rate. But we didn't go too far down that path because we're going to do an entire segment on the bond market later on. From there, we went into central banks, and we talked about interest rates and how they can affect income-producing investments. 
And in our 17th episode, we talked about who borrows money from private lenders. We saw that real estate developers are common clients of private lenders. For instance, they often need cash quickly to close on deals. As well, they may need shorter-term financing, like mezzanine loans, that a bank may not provide. We noted that there's a thriving market of entrepreneurs that seek financing from private lenders because they can be a better fit, not because they're desperate. The following week, we explored why an entrepreneur might choose to borrow money instead of to raise capital from investors. We looked at some of the differences between equity financing and debt financing. After that, we talked about how a lender can incorporate more collateral into its loans beyond mortgages. So that can mean using instruments like general security agreements or GSAs, personal guarantees, and insurance policies. And last week, we looked at some of the steps to take if you, the listener, want to fund a mortgage loan by yourself. And so here we are today in our 21st show. Now, as you've seen for the last three months, many of the income investing episodes have been sponsored by a company called Pacific Income. This is a business that I started with my partner and investors back in the summer of 2017, and it's what we're going to discuss today. I thought it'd be a good way to illustrate the mortgage lending world for you from an insider's perspective. Instead of giving you conceptual or theoretical material, Pacific Income is a business that I run in real time. I'm its CEO and one of the directors. I thought it'd be a nice touch to share some of the experiences of launching and managing a financing firm before we move on to the next segment of the podcast. How does one start a business like this? Where do we find our deals? And what kinds of loans do we make? So just to be clear, there are a couple of different Pacific Income entities. We have a corporation and we have a limited partnership. But I'm just going to refer to the whole group as Pacific Income instead of getting technical with the various legal names. So how did the business come about? Like I said, I started Pacific Income in 2017, but I'd been in the private lending world for years before that. I'd already participated in at least 50 deals and had a pretty good network of entrepreneurs, business owners, mortgage brokers, and real estate developers, etc. Now, one of the ways that I built that network was through my website, alekazasadi.net. Through it, I was able to accumulate a subscriber base of almost 20,000 people from across the world. Many of my readers are real estate operators and entrepreneurs, so I get a lot of requests for financing and joint ventures from them. In fact, I got one just a few minutes ago before recording this episode. As such, my website inadvertently turned into a pretty deep source of private lending deals. Obviously, some are better than others, but over the years, I saw that there are plenty of business owners and property entrepreneurs who are talented and are often quite wealthy but for one reason or another, they just can't get traditional financing. A lot of the time, it's because they need a quick injection of capital and the bank just can't move at their speed. For instance, if they want to close on a property in a week, a bank may not be able to accommodate that. We talked about this a lot in episode 17. Bank loans are just sometimes not a good fit for entrepreneurs, so they instead go to private lenders and they pay a bit more interest, but they can also get more flexibility and creativity. So that's the sort of space that I've been playing in for years and have a lot of opportunities in. And because of my own capital restrictions, I've always focused on deals under the $250,000 mark. As well, over time, I'd built relationships with lawyers and lenders and brokers and other business partners there. 
So it's kind of been the natural progression of my career. So I started Pacific Income because I saw an opportunity to do something similar to what I was already doing, but just on a bigger, more sophisticated level. The idea was for the company to provide financing to business owners and real estate investors in either the US or Canada under $250,000, but only to help the borrower expand. So that could mean giving them cash to acquire a new property, hire employees or buy inventory, but not to pay off outstanding taxes or to cash out shareholders, etc. I wanted to be part of a growth story, not a lifeline for survival. And that was just a personal preference. To get there, one of the things that I would need would be investors. So I met with a securities lawyer in Vancouver at one of the major national law firms, and we talked about various financing options for the company. Once we settled on a strategy, we hired the firm to put together our investment offering documents and to assist with regulatory compliance. Among other things, Pacific Income would have to go through an audit, which I had never done before. So we hired a mid-sized audit firm on the recommendation of our securities lawyer, and all of that would go on for about three months. Now, to be frank, it was actually pretty intimidating at the time because the startup costs were quite high. Lawyers, auditors, and accountants are definitely not cheap. So we'd have to foot the bill with little to no incoming revenue. In fact, the whole thing actually started with a pretty big hiccup. Even before hiring a lawyer for Pacific Income, I had consulted my personal accountant about starting the business. I wanted to know what the most tax-efficient structure would be. So he gave me his advice, and I ran with it. A month later, after already being knee-deep with lawyers and auditors, my accountant sent me an email with completely different advice from what he first told me. I remember it clearly because I was in New York at the time. To make a long story short, when he first gave his advice, he didn't know if I was actually going to start the business, so he didn't really think much about his answer. But after realizing that we were doing it, he offered a totally different accounting opinion. He basically said that our current structure would be really bad from a taxation perspective, and he suggested a different type of entity. So we had to change the structure of the business, form a new company, and start again from scratch. And I also hired a new accountant. Flash forward a few months of working with lawyers and auditors and accountants, and we were up and running. The first deal that we did was with a health foods company, which needed capital to develop its inventory. Since then, we financed anything from real estate projects to fitness ventures and catering companies. In most cases, even if it's not a property deal, we still try to back our loans with mortgages. For example, one of our borrowers is a professional athlete who's in the process of starting a gym. So to protect our loan in case it didn't work out, we placed a second mortgage on his house. We don't always use mortgages, but we try to as often as possible. To be perfectly honest, Pacific Income is not all that different from other financing companies. We get loan applications from various borrowers, we review them, we consider their collateral and what they're going to do with the money, and if we're interested, we look at giving them a loan. We run them through our due diligence process, which can mean assessing their taxes, their financials, their business strategy and metrics, and obviously their assets and liabilities, and if there's going to be a mortgage involved, we'll look at the LTV and the conditions of the property market. We'll also use GSAs and insurance policies and personal guarantees whenever it's appropriate. For me, one of the most important factors is the exit strategy. How do we get paid back? We have a list of internal rules and guidelines that we follow for due diligence. Here are three of the most basic ones. 
First, we don't lend at below 10% interest. We're pretty much in line with other commercial lenders in our market there. But that aside, it's hard to make the numbers work for us with anything under 10%. I think the lowest we've done so far is 12%. Second, the maturity date is always three years or under. In part, that's to help us manage interest rate risk. But in most cases, entrepreneurs usually request financing from us for a year or under. So that hasn't really been an issue for us. And third, we never commit over $250,000 to a single loan. Obviously, that helps us diversify our risk. But even if that wasn't a consideration, the vast majority of our deal flow is entrepreneurs looking for under that amount. We don't often get requests for millions of dollars. So Pacific Income is obviously not a revolutionary business. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out how to lend money. We're careful, we're ethical, we do our research properly, we have good professional advisors, and we don't take stupid risks. But you could probably replace me with any competent CEO. It's not like we've reinvented the wheel. But I think one of our advantages is our deal flow, which comes largely from my network of entrepreneurs and real estate operators. We have a good pool of lending opportunities to draw from, and we don't have to pay mortgage brokers whenever a deal closes. A lot of financing companies do. For example, a broker might send a deal that pays 12% interest and a 2% origination fee, but he's going to want at least half, if not all, of that fee. So the lender is basically just left with earning interest. Pacific Income doesn't have that problem. We do use mortgage brokers sometimes, but they're not the key to our business. I like being able to control where our deals come from instead of relying on other people. As well, some companies will pay the origination fee to the management team instead of leaving it as earnings to the business. We don't do that either. Our management team charges a flat percentage, and we earn two levels of bonuses. We make our first bonus after our partners have made an 8% return in a year, and we earn our second bonus after they've made 10%. So there's a lot of incentive to pay out as much as possible. Right now, we've been able to make a distribution to investors each month since July of 2017. Throughout this year, we've been able to pay an annualized pre-tax return of above 9%, and it's been increasing monthly. Our most recent one was at an annualized return of 9.5%. I'm hoping to push that all the way up to 11%. So it's been a good run so far. As I said, Pacific Income wasn't my first crack at the lending business but it's come with its own set of challenges and rewards. The worst part for me was launching it because it came with so many expenses and it took several months. The best part is that it's a pretty fun business to run. I don't know why, but I actually like writing offer letters. It's a weird little thrill that I get. It's also cool to see the businesses that we finance grow. For example, there's one company that we did, which has a great Instagram page that features a lot of their products. And whenever they post a new image, it's always like, you know, we had something to do with that. All right, so here is my advice if you ever want to get into a business like this. I'll skip over things that you'd obviously do for any venture, like determining whether there's any money in it. But if you want to go from a passive investor to an all-out lender, here's what you should keep in mind. First, take a meeting with a professional, probably a lawyer, and see if it's feasible. There are a host of regulatory issues to think about including whether you need to get licensed as a lender. Second, decide on your business structure and get a tax opinion in writing. You'll want to know how and when your entity will pay taxes. Third, make sure you have deal flow. 
If you don't have a source of lending opportunities, then be sure to connect with realtors and mortgage brokers who can send them to you. To be honest, I don't know if I would have started Pacific Income if I didn't have my own source of lending opportunities. Fourth, follow a set of due diligence rules. It's a lot easier to manage risk that way. I'm not saying you should act like a bank and automatically disqualify deals, but you should have some sort of guideline to follow. And fifth, be organized. Record your borrower's payments using software or even in a spreadsheet. You should know what's being allocated to interest, principal, origination fees, late fees, and reimbursements. This is not just necessary for bookkeeping. It'll also be useful if your borrowers request a statement of account. As well, you should decide on a day of the month when you want your payments to be made. When I started out years ago, I thought it'd be a good idea to have payments come in each and every single day. That way there would be consistent income. But I quickly realized that that can be really difficult to manage. So now Pacific Income will only accept payments on the 15th or on the last day of every month. Okay, so this is the part of the podcast where I try to sell you on our services. I promise it won't take more than a few minutes. If you're listening, there's a good chance that you yourself are an entrepreneur, a business owner, or a real estate operator. You may be trying to expand, but for whatever reason are unable to get traditional financing. In my opinion, you should consider the good folks at Pacific Income for the following reasons. First, we understand that you might not fit within the box, so we're not going to automatically dismiss your application if there's something complicated about your venture. We are entrepreneurs too, and we get that things ain't always easy. Second, we can move faster than some of the other lenders out there. If you can get the information that we need from you quickly, then we can probably fund you quickly. We're not going to sit around and make you wait for six weeks if we don't have to. In some cases, we can close in a matter of days. Third, Pacific Income is an ethical lender. Some of the firms out there try to take application fees and origination fees without ever intending to complete the loan. There are others who are in the business of tricking borrowers into signing complicated agreements just so that they can foreclose. As of today, we have funded almost every single deal that we committed to in an offer letter, and we have never foreclosed on a property. And fourth, there are no hidden fees. In all likelihood, you're going to pay above 12%, usually through a combination of interest and origination costs. And if you're late with the payment, you're probably going to pay a 1% late fee and you're going to have to reimburse us for whatever expenses we incur to finance your deal. But we spell all of this out in both the offer letter and also in the promissory note. So if you want to learn more about doing business with us, you can visit us online at packincome.com. That's P-A-C-income.com. As well, some people may be able to invest their money into Pacific Income. So far, our investors have been the type that want to earn monthly income that's connected to an element of real estate. If you want to learn more about that, you can again visit the website and submit a contact form. That's pacincome.com. You're going to get a phone call and you're going to receive an almost 70-page offering document. That's going to give you a thorough description of the business, including the various risks involved. And your participation will be subject to both our compliance department and applicable securities laws. Do not base your decision on what you've heard in this podcast, and past performance is no guarantee of future results. So that brings us to just about the end of our segment about direct mortgage lending. I know this episode was all about me and my business, but I hope you got something from it. 
Next week, we're going to wrap up the prior 11 episodes with a fun little quiz. I'll actually be in Panama at the time. Until then, if you have any questions or if you want to get in touch with me, just go to alexisasadi.net slash podcast, and I'll see you next Wednesday.